Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I'm so stoked to be here. I'm very excited to kick off season three with this awesome episode with Dr. Marla Holt. But before we get started, let's dive into our whale of the week. That is L87 Onyx. So Onyx is a male killer whale born in 1992. His family consists of his sister, Spirit, L22, her offspring, Solstice, L89, and cousin, Mystery, L85. Onyx is the only southern resident killer whale known to have switched pods. So he traveled with K-Pod for four years, then J-Pod for six years, and is now back with L-Pod. So pretty interesting whale. This week, I chatted with Dr. Marla Holt. She's a research wildlife biologist for the marine mammal ecology team at NOAA. So she's currently studying marine mammal acoustics, including the effects of noise on acoustic signals and behaviors of the Southern residents. So we're going to dive into that a bit in this episode. She got her bachelor's degree as well as her PhD from the University of California at Santa Cruz and had a focus in ocean science. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Super stoked to be back. And just a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's easy. Go to audible.com slash breachingextinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week, I have Dr. Marla Holt with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what your current role is, and how you got involved with the Southern Residence? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a research wildlife biologist um, at the NOAA Fisheries Northwest Fishery Science Center in Seattle, um, Washington, um, and I work for the Marine Mammal Ecology Team um, at, um, in the Conservation Biology Division. Um, I started my current position in 2009, and prior to that, I was a National Research Council postdoc um, after I got my PhD at UC Santa Cruz in 2006. I moved up to Seattle um, to start the postdoc to um, study um, the effects of vessel noise on acoustic communication in Southern residents. And so My prior work, um, my PhD work was in pinnipeds and seals and sea lions. And I worked um, both um, on the hearing side and with animals under human care at Long Marine Lab. And then also up at Aranuevo, um, looking at acoustic um, communication and male elephant seals. Um, And then um, I didn't start working with Southern residents until I started my postdoc in 2006. And so that was 
um, a really unique opportunity uh, for me. And um, right before I started my postdoc, I, I was able to participate in the Southern Resident Killer Whale Symposium that spring. And so it was kind of like a crash course of what we know about Southern residents and the science and conservation behind them. And that was during the time that they were being listed as endangered. Wow, That's some impeccable timing that you have there. And that is pretty remarkable that you were able to switch from pinnipeds over to cetaceans. Um, so what interests you about the acoustics of uh, these cetaceans? Uh, basically, I am very interested in um, sensory, so the sensory experience of animals that are kind of outside of our own understanding or our own experiences. And so um, in high school, I got interested in echolocation and um, acoustics underwater because I found that really fascinating that like um, animals um, had this alternate um, perceptual world uh, and that that, um, that experience in the ocean, you know, is quite different from what, um, you know, we as humans, as terrestrial animals would experience. And so I got really interested in that. And I always um, um, was um, very fascinated by um, echolocation in dolphins. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I started um, seeking out opportunities to get involved in that type of work. And it was actually, um, my chemistry high school teacher had us, um, she assigned us to interview a scientist um, that um, was working in a field that we might be interested in science in the future. So she really encouraged us to consider a career in science in that way. And I, um, I uh, interviewed a graduate student that was working with Hal Markowitz at, um, with the um, Pacific White-Sided Dolphins at the um, Steinhardt Aquarium at the um, Academy of Sciences, which was a couple blocks down from where I lived at the time in San Francisco. And so that was kind of like um, my window into um, dolphin work and then specifically um, acoustics. And then I started working with pinnipeds um, because you know, not only do they make their living in the ocean being marine mammals, but they are tied to land for reproduction, for breeding, and, um, you know, for molting and other, other parts of their life. And so they have, their sensory world is kind of this dual world where they have to be able to see and hear and, and smell, you know, um, and operate in both air and water. And so that is a really interesting thing to study because there's a lot of trade-offs that go with how their sensory systems have evolved and what their perceptual world is like. And so that was a really good opportunity for me to, um, to get more into the sensory ecology side of, um, of marine mammals. And, and, and then specifically, I started really focusing on acoustics because um, uh, you know at the time that I started grad school, um, ocean noise effects became a very um, important conservation topic. Absolutely. Um, so tell us about your work studying the Southern residents for people who maybe don't understand how we study acoustics. Like how do you go about collecting that data? Yes, so so basically there's, there's a variety of different approaches. Um, uh, a lot of it involves using, um, you know, recordings that are made by hydrophones or underwater microphones. So some type of hydrophone um, recording system and then collecting um, um, data that you can um, put together with the acoustic data. And so that there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. Currently, what we're using right now are these suction cup archival tags. So they're temporarily attached to the Southern residents and inside they have both, um, they, both they have, uh, two hydrophones, so two underwater microphones that record um, how the animals use sound um, in their daily lives. And then uh, they also document the um, environmental or background noise that they're exposed to. In addition, these tags um, are have movement sensors. Um, so they have like um, depth recorder, they're a depth recorder component to it. And then they have accelerometers and magnetometers that help us understand their um, underwater movement. And so it's kind of like, you know, an activity tracker that has an accelerometer in your watch perhaps, and it can, um, it can tell like some type of activities that you're doing in the same way these suction cup tags um, can do the same thing. And so, uh, you know, what's really interesting about cetaceans, uh, including, you know, killer whales, 
um, southern resident killer whales is that, you know, it's really hard to observe their natural behavior because much of their behavior occurs underwater outside of our own visual, um, you know, view. And so it's really hard to directly observe them, uh, especially, um, you know, when we, when we look at um, what they're doing underwater when they're chasing fish, for example. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so this gives us like a whole other, you know, understanding of what's going on. Um, so do you study like just like, do you look at their different, I don't know if dialects is the right word, but do like the different calls within the groups or do you kind of more focus on um, how those calls or clicks change whenever they're in the presence of noise? Yeah, good question. So killer whales, I mean, they use sound for a variety of different reasons. Um, one of the big reasons is for communication. And so they produce these, um, you know, relatively low frequency pulse calls. And many of them are, are stereotypic or, or what John Ford um, labeled as discrete calls. And these are, you know, very repeated, um, very stable over, you know, um, decadal time periods. Um, there's good um, evidence that, you know, uh, killer whales learn these from their their mother groups, their maternal um, groups, and um, and so uh, I I did study that for my postdoc work um, where I looked at uh, what what's what's called the Lombard effect basically, and so I was interested in how they modify their vocal behavior for communication um, in the presence of increased um, anthropogenic noise, and so in particular in the Salish Sea where these whales come in the summer and it's dominated by, by vessel traffic. And we have a variety of different, you know, vessel types um, in their core summer habitat. And so I was interested to see uh, what, how they would respond to increased um, noise from vessels. And so I specifically looked at their communication signals um, for that. And, and so I did study their pulse calls. Um, and it's interesting because you, because these, the calls that they produce are, um, they're population specific. Mm -hmm. And um, when you learn their call repertoire, you, you can use that, um, you know, for other applications like passive acoustic monitoring. And mm -hmm. so you can say, oh, those are Southern resident calls or Northern resident calls. Um, and even down to um, pod specific calls, which are really cool. Um, and so, um, just to round out the my postdoc work, you know what what we found was that as background noise from from nearby vessels increased, so did the amplitude of those pulse calls. And so um, the whales were speaking up, so to so to speak, um, when background noise increased. And this is you know people do this, other animals have demonstrated this ability as well. Um, you know the analogy would be like you know um, now that like things are opening up, um, at, you know, in the pandemic and you can go to restaurants now and, you know, we have higher capacity and stuff like that. Like you want to catch up with your friend, but then there's more people in the restaurant now. So sometimes you have to raise your voice higher, just naturally you do it. You kind of do it unconsciously. And so the whales do this too. And this, um, is good evidence that, um, that, um, there's a challenge for them with this increased background noise. And specifically, you know, that um, there's different types of effects of sound exposure. You know, I, I mentioned that that's one of the things that, that is of my research interest. Um, and, and, what it, and one of those auditory effects or hearing effects of sound exposure is masking. And that's auditory masking is basically when, you know, background noise um, maybe makes it a challenge for you to hear um, sounds of interest to you, um, for example. And so um, when the whale, whales speak up as vessel noise increases, that demonstrates to me that um, masking from vessels is a challenge for their communication. Um, and so um, the whales also use sound for echolocation. And this is an active um, form of sonar, uh, basically just like bats. Um, they have a very highly sophisticated um, echolocation system where they send out pulsed sounds, um, uh, clicks, they sound like clicks to our ears, and they perceive echoes off of objects in their underwater environment. The ocean is you know, dark, cold, and salty. It's hard, you know, to, to see visual range is pretty limited in the ocean. 
And so these animals have you know, evolved a very sophisticated way of using sound to actively hunt um, the big fatty Chinook salmon that they prefer. And so um, the work that I'm doing now with the D-tags is, is really tying their use of sound for foraging um, to link the specific risk factors of the Southern residents. Um, that being, you know, prey, um, disturbance from vessels and noise, and contaminants. And so um, what we're doing with the DTAG project is really is really tying their critical use of sound for foraging um, with the, um, the prey risk factor. Absolutely. In the most recent paper that I saw that you were on, basically, you know, I remember the takeaway being that the females, um, it makes it harder for the females to find food. Um, if, if I'm understanding that correctly. Um, but which, like, so what sort of things for maybe people who are less familiar with the Southern residents, what kind of um, vessels or other things are gonna impact noise for these guys? Well, like I said before, um, they're, when they come into the Salish Sea, and this is, this is where we do our research, um, that this, this is really their core summer habitat of designated critical habitat. So when they come in here, they're following salmon runs that are going to um, their um, their natal rivers, mm -hmm. and, um, and so that is also it coincides in place and time where noise, the environmental noise, is dominated by vessel traffic. Mm -hmm. You know, we have um, we have whale watching activities, we have fishing, we have pleasure craft, we have commercial shipping um, to major ports on the West Coast. Um, and so, you know, in space and time, these all these things are happening. And at the same time, the Southern residents, you know, historically have come in in the summer and utilize this habitat for very critical life functions. That is to find these big fat Chinook salmon that are going, you know, to the rivers um, that are around, you know, BC and um, Washington state. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, you know, obviously short-term it's going to affect, you know, their ability to talk to one another and eat long-term, what kind of effects do you think this will have on them? Yeah. So going back to the paper, um, and, and I should say that to, um, to make it clear, um, what we found was, is that, um, from the D tags, you know, we really have a, a, a very solid understanding now of how they're hunting for these um, these big salmon, and and what's you know what's interesting about that, and it's important to understand, um, you know, critically how how they find these these salmon using sound, and um, how vessel noise can impact that critical use of sound, um, and so we're able. So previous studies, you know, and this is building off of previous studies. So previous mm -hmm. studies have looked at the effects of vessel presence on foraging behavior, particularly, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so one of the things um, that was most concerning about, um, you know, behavioral responses of Southern residents to, to nearby vessels was this reduction in foraging behavior, considering the prey risk factor of, of this endangered population. And so, um, the thing about foraging, like I said before, is that it's really hard to observe killer whale behavior at the surface. And so these previous studies were relying on surface, surface observations to say, okay, now the whales are foraging, now they're traveling, now they're resting, now they're socializing, for example. And so what we wanted to do is kind of revisit this um, to update you know, the effects. And, and, and this was you know, NOAA passed the um, federal rule um, that had a distance um, component to the regulation in 2011. So we wanted to look at you know, more contemporary um, data on this effect about how vessels might um, affect foraging behavior and then also address maybe some of the limitations of previous investigations. So this is where the suction cup tags are really important. And so we used the movement data that we get from the whale, the underwater, um, you know, chase of the fish. Um, and so what we found is that, you know, they dive deep 
um, that the fish don't give up easily, that the fish um, are definitely um, trying to escape predation. And throughout that whole chase, the whales are continuously using sound. They're using echolocation to, um, to detect prey, to pursue prey during the chase, and then to hopefully ultimately capture that big fish prize. Um, and, and so uh, essentially um, we have to understand kind of a couple of different things. You know, we have to understand how they're using sound and then also how they move um, when they're chasing this fish. And, and then when we understand the movement and the acoustics, we can put together on a dive by dive basis what behavioral activity state they're actually engaged in. And so in this study, we looked at when they're foraging and not just foraging, there's different parts of foraging and how they use sound. You know, they're using these slow clicks, clicking very steadily on these shallow dives to find prey targets. Um, what's, what's interesting about fish from an acoustics perspective is that they have um, these air-filled sacs, these swim bladders, that are really good acoustic reflectors. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and, and there's, there's evidence that those swim bladders are different in different species of fish, even mm -hmm. of similar size. Um, Whitlow Al, um, who is um, um, on my dissertation committee and, you know, is considered like, you know, uh, he's done some seminal work on dolphin echolocation. Mm -hmm. um, he, he actually used um, um, simulated um, orca or killer whale clicks and um, insonified live fish mm. uh, at UW um, to test, you know, the, the backscatter or those echoes that come off the fish. And what's really interesting is that he found that, you know, there's, there's differences in that echo depending on if it's a coho or a chinook, even of similar size. And so it's likely that, you know, that our Southern residents can discriminate different um, types of fish, um, you know, and using other contextual cues, obviously, because, you know, different species of salmon may, may hang out in different parts of the water column or in different, you know, habitats um, um, that are related, you know, to, to things like bathymetry and whatnot. But, um, but essentially, you know, understanding kind of that critical way that they're finding the fish that they prefer and then um, how nearby vessels might um, impact that critical ability is what we looked at in this paper. And so we looked at the different phases of foraging when they're, when they're searching for prey, using these slow clicks surface, when they decide to dive deeper, their mm -hmm. clicks increase, the repetition rate of the click. So they go click, 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 and they go click, 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 click. And then like that, so they, when they get really close, like say, you know, within a body length of a target, they produce these really rapid pulses that sound like a buzz. To so those buzzes are like zoom. That indicates when we can record those on, and so, to kind of look at that whole, all those different phases of foraging and then how nearby vessels might have impacts um, on those different phases. And so with these, these multi-sensor high resolution tags, we can differentiate these different phases of foraging where sound is incredibly critical. Um, and so in this paper, what we, what we were able to do is look at dives that were involving deep foraging and then um, Dr. Jenny Tennyson, who is, um, she did a postdoc um, um, with our team looking at the movement data. So we put together the movement of these whales when they were chasing prey. And, and then um, what's also cool about these tags is that when they successfully capture prey, we hear these crunching sounds because they're big fish that they prefer. And so they have to kind of handle them and, and um, break them up. And we can hear those crunching sounds because um, the whales usually, you can hear the flow noise when they're moving really fast, you can hear those buzzes. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, that, that noise um, shuts down and then you hear crunch, crunch, crunch. You know, it's subtle, but it's there. And so, um, and then they like to pray share too. So 
you know, the crunches can last several seconds. And so those are good opportunities for us to um, detect those prey crunching sounds. And when we collected this DTAG data, we also um, used um, a couple of different um, things to put together what they were doing for this work. And I, I'm, I'm taking a lot of time to explain this, but I think these are important points that, um, that um, so, so Deborah Giles, Dr. Deborah Giles was um, critically involved in our, our DTAG study as well. And she for, so she collected very fine scale um, focal follow data using equipment packages that she developed um, for her PhD work. And these are basically like the otolite systems um, with a data collector connected to it um, that are, are um, modified for work on a boat. You know, so the theodolites are usually um, used in land surveys to make very um, precise, you know, measurements um, in space and relating, um, you know, how far one thing is from another, for example. Um, well, that works really well on land, but it's very clunky. And so the previous work um, uh, that looked at, you know, um, the, the effects of um, vessel presence on foraging behavior, you know, they had to do it from the land. And so um, there was some spatial, um, you know, they were limited um, spatially and, and where mm -hmm. they could observe the whale. Or, so for her, for her to be involved was really critical because she had this, this way, this method of collecting um, similar data on the water. Mm -hmm. And so we can look at, you know, where the whales were and where all the vessels were in relationship to the whale that was temporarily wearing that suction cup tag mm -hmm. and then and then piece it all together. Um, and, and then um, the other thing that we did is that we were very careful, careful in observing um, when a whale either brought up a fish to the surface or left little bits behind, so mm -hmm. pieces of tissue or fish scales that we could collect and later um, you know, analyze to see, okay, was that a, a Chinook or maybe a different type of salmon, for example, um, and that confirmed predation. And then, so when we had those, like, okay, that whale caught that fish, we could go back and look at all the things that they did just prior to that, when they were on a dive, where we couldn't observe them directly. And um, so um, Dr. Tessen was able to put together the, the, the movement signatures um, of those whales when they were catching prey. So we call those prey capture dives that we um, confirmed with direct observations. And then we could use those signatures um, that we um, also validated with the buzzes that we heard from the acoustic recording from the tag and the prey crunches uh, to say, okay, this dive, this deep foraging dive involved prey capture. So successful um, predation. Um, and then um, we could look at other dives like the shallow dives with the slow clicking. Okay, um, those are searching for prey acoustically. We mm -hmm. could look at other dives that maybe involve some of the buzzes and the fast clicking, but there was no movement signature or kinematic signature that indicated successful prey capture. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and then there were some dives that were just shallow and repeated and there was no echolocation. Um, and so we could categorize these dives based on this wealth of data that we got from um, the D tags and then put that together with the information we got from our focal follows. Mm -hmm. So all, all of the data that, that, um, that Giles was collecting at the surface for vessels and, whale, and, and what we could see um, from whale behavior at the surface. Um, and so putting this all together, what we found from the paper was that um, these deep foraging dives involving prey capture, um, both the occurrence and the time spent in these dives um, were reduced when the average distance of the vessels around the whales were um, closer. And by closer on average, we mean like less than 400 yards. And so we looked at the different ways um, that vessels um, might affect foraging behavior, such as vessel distance, vessel speed, vessel count. You know, we look at all these variables because we collected all this data during the focal follows. And the thing that came out here on, on prey capture dives was vessel distance. Mm -hmm. And so 
the whales spend less time, both males and females spend less time um, in dives involving successful prey capture. Um, and they made fewer dives. And then females in particular, we looked at how they would transition from one type of dive to another. And the thing that kind of raised our eyebrows was these, these females, once, you know, once they caught a prey, they were less likely to go back into a foraging state if, there were, if vessels were close. Mm-hmm. And if vessels were farther away and gave them more space, they were more likely to transition into maybe searching for prey acoustically again. Mm-hmm. So continuing to forage. And, and so the important thing about that is, you know, um, uh, we found that some behaviors, some of these dives occur in bouts and acoustically searching for prey is, are, are, these, are these bouts that seem to be very important um, for them to ultimately go on one of these deep um, prey capture dives. Mm. I hope this is making sense, but please ask questions um, to clarify. No, this makes sense. And I do appreciate you going in depth with this. Um, and I think it will help a lot of our listeners too. Cause I remember when that study came out, a lot of people were confused by, I think there was like a matrix that was used um, and some other things. So I think that this will help people to kind of conceptualize it a little bit better. Um, so, you know, ultimately we need to stay a distance from the whales. Um, and you know, it sounds to me like we just don't have the luxury of not doing everything that it takes for them given their current state, what can we, like, are there more regulations that you feel like maybe should be put into place to keep other types of boats out? Um, Because I know whale watching is heavily regulated and, you know, rightfully so. Um, But as far as like wreck boats and commercial, um, like shipping containers, like how can we, is there anything that we can do? Like, are there people that, you know, politicians we can write and ask them to take those down? Would that be effective or not take them down, but to remove them kind of from their summer core habitat? Yeah, I, I think I think for, for me, you know, um, what's important for me is to relay to people what it's like to be a, a killer whale, and in particular, a Southern resident killer whale that's relying on those fish during the summer and doing these things that maybe we don't connect. And, 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 and that's again, because we don't experience what they experience, um, you know, underwater. And so I think a lot of people can't connect that, you know, when they're out themselves on the water, you know, you're out on a recreational boat or pleasure craft and, and you run into killer whales, you know, it may not seem obvious to you. Um, You know, we're not always like sticking our head underwater and listening to all the vessel noise that is, you know, occurring. Um, and so what I like to do is, is connect people to kind of their, that sensory world, that acoustic world that they experience um, and, and for, to raise awareness about that and to say, you know, they're using sound very critically and any noise that we introduce in the ocean um, is going, it, you know, if it overlaps in space and time with them, you know, that, that could potentially be a problem because they're, they're so acoustically reliant to find, um, you know, salmon and, you know, prey is obviously a a very important risk factor for this endangered population. And so I want people to think about that because people do get very excited about seeing, you know, killer whales on the water. And I think in that excitement, they sometimes can forget why the killer whales are there and how important it is that those Southern residents are there at a certain period in time um, for, you know, getting what they need to support, you know, pregnancy and, um, um, you know, lactation for females. Um, and so this tying back to this paper, you know, seeing this, this effect specifically on females does raise eyebrows because we want, you know, um, a, a female that has to produce milk for her calf. That's a very energetically costly um, state to be in. And so um, I would argue, you know, that females need as, as much calories that they, as they can to support that, that reproductive phase. And you know, we ultimately want those calves to, um, you know, wean at a really great weight and be able to survive to, you know, age of reproduction as well. And that's, that's really, that's connecting, um, you know, how they're using sound for foraging and the acoustics and the prey risk factor, and then um, what it would take, you know, for population recovery. We need females 
to um, birth calves and those calves to survive and those calves to then produce more calves into the population, you know? Um, and so I, I do think that, um, that, you know, people should be aware of, uh, you know, how they're using sound and what the noise that we introduced in the ocean, how that, that can impact Southern residents. Um, and in terms of, you know, my science, what, what it does really is it supports um, those, the management decisions um, that, you know, the regional office, um, the folks in the regional office, um, you know, have to do to help um, protect Southern residents and to address um, the recovery plan of, you know, the Southern residents when they were listed. Um, and, you know, we have, we have, so now I should say that this, the study um, that we were talking about that showed this um, reduction in prey capture dives and this effect um, specifically on females, uh, you know, was collected between the 2010 and the 2014 timeframe. And so um, we have additional regulations in, in place, um, you know, after this data were collected. And so we're continuing to collect further data to look at, um, you know, we were focused on, um, on the vessel effects very specifically. Um, and so we only collected data during daytime hours and now we're collecting um, data across the whole 24 hour cycle. So we're allowing the tags to stay on because these tags can be programmed to release. Um, we're allowing the tags to stay on overnight to understand um, what they're doing at night. Um, are they foraging just as much as night as during the day? That's really important to look at things like um, their, uh, their feeding rates. Are they getting enough food? Do we think we're getting, they're getting enough food in terms of what we know about their energetic requirements? Um, to support different life functions. And then also, you know, if, if, um, if there's this effect on, on prey capture and foraging behavior, can they, is it possible for them to make up for lost opportunities otherwise? And so, um, and then, you know, we're continuing to collect data now um, during the day as well. And so um, with the different, now that we have, we have different vessel regulations across different jurisdictions. We have the NOAA rule that was passed in 2011. We have the Washington state um, rule for all boaters. And then now the commercial whale watching um, regulations. And then in Canada, they have um, interim measures um, the last couple of years, and they're gonna continue that um, this year that has um, distance regulations as well. And so what I hope is that my science can help um, inform that process. Um, and, uh, you know, so for us as NOAA scientists, we're tasked with providing that, you know, that best available science, because I would argue it's really important to really accurately understand first the basic biology and ecology of, you know, the species you're trying to conserve. Um, and this is, you know, this is really important because I think, you know, if, if you try to tweak things from a conservation angle and you don't fully understand what's going on, then there's a potential that either what you're doing doesn't work or you could be doing more harm than good, right? Um, and so that's where, um, you know, as a NOAA scientist, I don't have to consider, I can consider my science and I can say, you know, what the science tells me is if we do this, then this would benefit the whales. Um, but, you know, in the US, it's, it's more complicated than that. And it goes through a very, um, a very formal process that involves, you know, public comment periods um, for rulemakings and such. And, and so um, we keep those things separate because, um, you know, for managers, they have to not only consider the best available science, but other aspects, you know, um, economic or cultural or social aspects. Um, and so I can speak to the science, but I can't say, you know, without, you know, doing a whole analysis, um, you know, how that would, cause there's always trade-offs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's highly nuanced, um, highly complex. Um, you know, one of the, um, I guess sides that I've heard is sometimes people will argue that there's something called sentinel effects that the whale watching boats actually help the whales because they show wreck boaters how to behave. I don't know if you've seen and or can comment on that, but I haven't 
seen any like science to back that and I was just curious if you had thoughts. Yeah, so I was um, at the state level um, that you know when they when they were talking about commercial um, whale watching license the license program and the regulations um, at the state level. Um, I was part of the panel of experts um, at the Washington State Academy. And so um, we looked at lines of evidence from SoundWatch, um, the SoundWatch data that were collected to see if, if there was evidence that of a sentinel effect. And unfortunately, there's um, we, we couldn't find evidence for that. Um, so, you know, I think that should be revisited for sure. Um, you know, and some on the flip side would argue that, you know, they're magnets. And so those are important things to kind of consider um, that, you know, um, whether or not, you know, whale watching boats are sentinels or whether they're magnets, you know, and, and it could be both. Um, but, but yes, from a science perspective, we did look, we did look at that and there wasn't any firm evidence to support that claim. Okay, good to know. Yeah, I just heard that kind of get thrown around a little bit. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing stuff at night because I also remember people were questioning, you know, why you guys picked the time frame that you did um, to like analyze the data. And so now that makes that a little bit more clear too. Um, so what can we do for the Southern residents to help reduce noise pollution? Obviously on a personal level, I think, you know, we can encourage people maybe not to use rec boats um, around the Southern residents, but what other things can we do to help them? Yeah, good question. I, I think, you know, being well informed is important and being very critical about, you know, the information um, that you're basing your opinions about is incredibly important. And, that, and the, so I would argue the first place to look is, is to go to the experts and, you know, NOAA has a, so much information about, um, you know, the work that, that not only we've done, but the work that, that we've supported um, uh, on the Southern Resident Killer Whale uh, science side, as well as, you know, um, all, all of the things that we've considered um, in terms of, uh, you know, the listing, the recovery plan, um, actions under the Endangered Species Act that protect them. Um, and so I think, you know, kind of, kind of really stepping back and looking at it like holistically and the risk factors, you know, I think are important to consider for a couple of different reasons and that we have another paper in review that is really looking at specifically the, how these risk factors interact. So specifically looking at noise and looking at vessels and looking at prey um, and trying to put all of those things together. And so um, I would say stay tuned for that. Um, if people need um, more evidence of how these risk factors truly are interactive risk factors. You know, people will say, oh, you know, it's about this one risk factor or it's about another, um, you know, and, and when we look at only one risk factor in and of itself, it, it kind of doesn't explain everything. It, you know, what, what really kind of explains what's going on with Southern residents is, you know, the interactive part of that, of that story. Um, and I think what we can do is, you know, be conscious about how our, you know, you know, our choices that we make can potentially, you know, affect those, um, those things. And, you know, again, when we talk about salmon and when we talk about um, vessel traffic, those are hard choices. You know, we as a society have to decide, you know, what do we want? what do we want to do about, you know, how we've affected, um, you know, salmon in the Salish Sea and how we've, uh, how we, how we do things in our daily lives, how we get things, you know, um, to us, you know, um, and so uh, I, I don't think there's necessarily very easy answers to that. Those, you know, it's considering, it's really asking questions about those trade-offs and what we're willing to do and not just maybe pointing the finger at the thing that doesn't make it, you know, make something where we have to change, you know, like as an individual, you would have to change the way that you operate. Um, so you pick that one thing because it's easy for you to, to focus on that one thing. Um, I would argue that it's, you know, that, that there's a lot of things to consider. And, and, and also um, 
you know, turn, turning the dial on some of these things can be easier than others. And some things, you know, can, can occur on a shorter time frame, and some things can occur on a longer time frame. And I think in terms of NOAA, like we're, we're very committed to, to looking at both the short term and the long term um, effects. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's, it's not like you can just look at one thing um, in terms of their risk factors and say, that's, that's the only thing that really matters. Yeah. I guess that's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head and it's, it's totally easy to pick one thing. And, you know, for me, the thing that I focus on the most is the salmon, mostly just because that's what I'm the most passionate about, but I totally understand where you're coming from. And I, um, you know, the part where you're talking about not doing what, you know, doing, not choosing the thing that you, you know, choose so that it, you don't have to make an individual change. Like I, see that far too often. I actually used to work in whale watching up in Washington and I don't work in whale watching because up there, I work in it down here in California because we don't have the same issues with endangered species and I don't think it's right. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you. We have to look at all of it because it's all a big issue. And I think every little thing needs to be addressed rather than just deflecting on, hey, let's focus on this or that. Like, let's you know, be proactive about it. I completely agree with you. Yeah, and the other thing I would say, you know, just in terms of, I mean, we talked already about it at an individual level, but, you know, I think there are, I, when people ask me, you know, they want to come up and, and see Southern Residents or Killer Whales up here, you know, I always encourage them, go to, go by land-based, you know, um, viewing. There's some great places off the west side of San Juan Island, you know, Lime Kiln um, during the summer that, you know, you know, you can get a great experience um, viewing Southern residents and other killer whales from land. And so I always try to encourage people to do that first. Um, and so, you know, people make different choices. You know, we, we're all human. We, there's all, there's trade-offs in all of our choices. And I think first of all, being, you know, well-informed and having um, good science-based information allows us to make, I think, um, you know, intelligent choices about that, that, that will help Southern residents. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, I mean, you know, if we go back and look through orca history, like, you know, there were um, like bounties put on orcas because that we thought they were, you know, killing salmon and that we should kill them. And like, that was an idea that at the time sounded like a good idea to those making those decisions. But if we looked at the science, we would know that that was not a good idea. And I think um, we've learned enough and we're far enough down the line of history that, you know, we should use science kind of as the pinnacle, like peer reviewed good science um, as, you know, where we're gonna make our choices and how we're gonna form our opinions. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are a ton of examples in conservation biology where if you don't understand, you don't have the sound science to back up an action um, that you are going to go in the wrong direction um, in terms of, you know, what your objective is. If you want to recover Southern residents and you don't fully understand, you know, um, basic biology and ecology, like you, you could definitely, um, you know, um, at the least not have any impact and at the worst have, you know, the opposite effect that you're, that you intend to. Absolutely. Um, I always ask people is what can we learn from the whales? Um, we can, oh, we can, we can learn a lot from the whales. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, that just, just that, again, the different perspective, um, there, you know, they, there's so many cool things about Southern residents, um, that, you know, I've observed just, um, doing the science that I do out in the water and, um, and they're very, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, you know, you know, dolphins and whales, they're so intelligent, they're so um, amazing. And, you know, we always, you know, a lot of people have this kind of romanticized version of them. But, you know, in a lot of ways, they're like us. I mean, they're highly social. You know, they, they um, you know, they stay, you know, the resident killer whales, they're staying with their moms their entire life, both males and females. You know, they're connected. They have really close family ties. And I think a lot of what they do that we see as so intelligent is social intelligence. And we, we can connect to that because we are social animals as well. And so I think there's a lot of parallels that you know, we can make um, just 
purely based on that. Um, and, um, you know, I think from, from kind of the very um, detailed understanding that I'm getting from the DTECs, and I'm hoping that, you know, um, our work, our science can help um, illustrate how important it is, um, you know, that that use of sound is and, and how um, maybe we don't hear it, you know, when we, um, you know, the vessel noise that's happening, but that, you know, I can, I can help um, inform people that it is, you know, it is a challenge. It is something that contributes um, to, uh, you know, uh, to the, the risk factors of the Southern residents. And these risk factors, you know, are, are challenges to population recovery. And I think a lot of people want um, Southern residents to, to persist that, that, you know, that you, if, if you're interested in having, you know, more Southern residents when your children or your grandchildren are around, you know, that we have to kind of um, learn from that in a variety of different ways. And so, um, and I think it starts with kind of the commonality of, of how how they are and how we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I hit the nail on the head for a lot of things. Um, are there any final thoughts that you have for our listeners? I know we covered a lot. Yeah, no, I, I think I've covered all of the, the main things that, that I want to convey. Um, I, you know, I thank you for this opportunity to, um, you know, communicate my science and to help, um, you know, the public understand um, all of the issues around Southern residents, um, you know, to help them recover. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate having you on here and hearing that perspective because I think it helps us as the public to make better informed decisions. So thank you for the work that you do and also your willingness to communicate it when it can be hard and confusing for a lot of people. Um, so thank you. I definitely appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. As always, check out our Facebook, Instagram. And if you're interested in further supporting us, feel free to check out our Patreon as well. Hope you guys have a wonderful week. Bye.